This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Teenagers are now cleared by the CDC and FDA to be vaccinated against COVID-19, but what if their parents won't let them get the shots? A bill in California would let kids as young as 12 get vaccinated without their parents' consent. But can kids that young really make their own medical decisions? The pandemic has more parents in California taking their kids out of school and moving them into homeschooling. Some even form their own small groups and co-ops. We'll take a closer look. And then there are thousands of Americans who caught COVID in the first wave of the pandemic back in early 2020. And two years later, they are still grappling with symptoms and effects of the virus. What more do we know about long COVID? Finally, whether it's the great resignation or the great shift, the pandemic has most definitely brought about long-lasting changes to the American economy. We start with teenagers and their ability to call their own shots, literally, when it comes to getting vaccinated against COVID. With us is Lindsay Ray White, uh, Wright, elementary school teacher, author, and reading interventionist. Lindsay, can kids as young as 12 really have the maturity to make their own medical decisions? I disagree with this completely. The rational part of a child's brain, their frontal lobes aren't even developed until they're 25 years old. They have no business making medical decisions at the age of 12. Well, let's take what the bill's author says. He says, you know, it's it's falling in line with some current law that uh, does give 12 and older the ability to, to decide on some things like the HPV vaccine, the hep. B vaccine. And then he says, this senator, that, you know, there's a lot of kids out there and we've heard some stories that they make slideshows for mom and dad and they say, I want this thing. Why are you not on board with me giving it or getting it? And uh, they feel like they can't be safe or do the stuff they want to do because the parents are anti-vax or whatever the reason. And this is where I'm at. I have a 13-year-old daughter myself who made a PowerPoint yesterday on why she wanted a pet turtle. And that wasn't even thorough enough to convince me. So much less allow her to make medical decisions for herself at that age. So you mentioned something interesting uh, about frontal lobes not being fully developed until 25. Yet certainly when, you know, kids turn 18, they can make their own decisions about medical issues. Exactly. And I changed my career path and major until the age of 22. And looking back now, some of the things that we would eat and drink and stay up all night. That that even wasn't the healthiest for us at the age of 18. I know that at the age 36 now, I make much better decisions than I did as a new mom at 25. And yet we know getting the COVID shot is not like eating or drinking something bad. It's good for you. The evidence shows it's safe. So if there's a 12-year-old who wants it and the only thing that stands in their way is mom and dad, uh, shouldn't they be able to get it if they don't feel safe at school. They don't want to get COVID. They don't want to stay home. Exactly. And I am, I'm pro-choice for parents making decisions for their children if it's in their best interest. However, I don't know that the children fully understand what it's like to make decisions for themselves that could possibly affect them long term. And I know it is, it is great. We have children all over our campus that are vaccinated and their parents have taken them to get vaccinated. But I also know the students that walk into my classroom are not fully capable of making those decisions. And what I, my fear is if we give them the choice to make those decisions, 
what will we be allowing them to do next? Uh, I was just going to ask you that, that, that does it open up a can of worms? That once you say someone who's 12 can make a decision, even if their parents say no, that they can be vaccinated for COVID, then yeah, I mean, you know, what's the next thing that they could say, look, I'm 12, but I really want to go on that cruise to the Caribbean. Exactly. And, and, and are they going to be able to go on the cruise to the Caribbean by themselves? No, they're going to need to <laughs> We all want to go on the cruise <laughs> <Yeah>. to the Caribbean. <laughs> um, does this also kind of feed into the classic complaints that we get, and we've had them for years, that, you know, and whether it's right or whether it's wrong, and this depends probably on your stance, but, uh, you know, these lawmakers, they're always telling parents what's best for their child, and it's from the top down, and let us make our own. That's just going to get going again, and this is a fight we've had for years and years and years. Exactly. The, uh, you know, when you deal with with children in your professional life, right, not not your own kids, but just you know, professionally, right. um, are there times, though, because I want to I want to sort of look at it from a devil's advocate point of view here. Are there times, though, that you're surprised by how mature even a 12 year old can be? And maybe maybe they make decisions that you thought they were incapable of making, but they made a good choice. Right. And that's what's so hard about this. I used to teach um, high school and some of those students are the parent in their household. Those children are taking care of siblings and they are making the decisions for their for their parents. So that is where it gets very sticky. So, you know, if it were 17 letting them make that decision, I could see where that would be okay. But 12, 13, 14, I mean, these kids are wearing shorts and it's 12 degrees outside. So they just they just don't make rational choices at that age of that importance. Lindsay Ray writes their elementary school teacher, author, reading interventionist. More parents in California pulling their kids out of school, deciding to homeschool them instead, either alone or in small groups. Close to 35,000 families filed an affidavit with the state to open a private home school for five or fewer students during the 2020-2021 school year. Now, that's more than double than 2018-2019. With us is Karen Golden, Director of Creative Learning Place and Enrichment Center in Palms, which helps parents set up homeschooling. So what are you hearing from parents about why they're wanting to choose the homeschooling route? There are a lot of reasons. First of all, thank you for having me on your show today. Um, there are a lot of reasons why parents are choosing to homeschool now. Uh, primarily, it's due to the pandemic. Some parents are feeling that they don't want their children to have to wear a mask all day in school. Some uh, parents feel that they're afraid that schools may go back to virtual and they don't want the uncertainty of that. Uh, there are other parents who are anti-vaccination, and they're afraid that schools might go in that direction. So there's really many factors that contribute to the rise in homeschooling. But those are just a few. Are there qualifications that parents have to present in order to teach their kids at home? No, there are no qualifications. The only thing that's required by the state of California is that a family must file a private school affidavit or they need to enroll their children in something called a homeschool charter school, which is essentially a public school that doesn't have a building. And the school funds the students' education through learning centers like mine. Uh, I provide education for students in grades K through 12 through my creative learning place. Or uh, students can use the funding that they receive from the state in their charter school to purchase materials, curriculum, or do online programs or 
um, you know, homeschool in other ways. Yeah, where does the stuff come from, the, the actual curriculum? Because if the, the parents don't need the, the qualifications or whatever, they can go to someplace that what you have. How do we know what kind of learning will be done? Wow, that's a, that's a huge... That's a huge can of worms. Um, but students, um, well, let's start with this. Parents do not need to have a degree in education to teach their own students, and there is no accountability in the state of California if a family chooses to homeschool through a private school affidavit. So you can order curriculum online. You can plan your own curriculum. You can choose to be an unschooling family where the world is your oyster and your curriculum comes from the encounters that you have day-to-day by going to museums or going hiking. Parents do it in lots of different ways. And the truth is, is that from kindergarten to eighth grade, none of this really matters. People don't know this, but it's not so important where your curriculum is. Once a student hits ninth grade, if they're thinking that they might want to go to a four-year university out of homeschooling, that's when it really starts to count, and that's really when curriculum is more important for those students who wish to go to a four-year university when they're 18. But I'm okay, trying but, to answer this quickly. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but, but you know, let's take going to uh, a university off the table for a moment, because not everybody wants to or needs to go, right. frankly, to a university. There, there are plenty of things in life to do without a, a college degree. But Absolutely. there are also things that you need to, to just need to know to navigate the world successfully. So if my parents say are, you know, they're PhDs, then, then maybe I have great confidence that I'll learn something. Suppose my parents are a bunch of dummies. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the challenges facing a lot of families right now because a, a family may not be very educated, but the one thing that's in their mind is, I don't want my child to wear a mask or I don't want my child to be vaccinated, and they feel that they can handle their child's education, and that is really a challenge because some families really don't have the means or the knowledge to educate their children. So then we're not confident that that child in that situation is, is getting a whole bunch of benefit. That's correct, and I'm receiving more and more calls from families that fit into that category, families that call me and they say, hey, we want to pull our kids from school, we're not happy with school, and then I say, okay, uh, let's talk about homeschooling, and when I tell them what kind of things they might do with their children, they're, they're quiet. <laughs> hmm. is, is, Cal- is California, in that respect, where the parents don't, have, uh, don't need to have any qualifications, is that unique in California, or is that pretty much the way it is, if you know, around the rest of the country? I think around most of the country, but what is unique in California is the homeschool charter system. That is unique. I don't know of other states that have that same system. Karen Golden, director of Creative Learning Place in Richmond Center in Palms, helps parents set up homeschooling. Coming right up after this short break, two years into this pandemic, and is there any better understanding or any help coming for people suffering with long COVID? The COVID pandemic could eventually leave this country with tens of thousands of people suffering from a new class of long-term disability. It's all of the COVID victims who continue to endure painful and frustrating symptoms month after their initial infections. So what more have we learned about long COVID and when is help coming for the people suffering through ceaseless symptoms? KYW News Radio in Philadelphia talked with Dr. Andrew Martin, Chair of Pulmonary Medicine at Deborah Heart and Lung Center. Can you define long COVID and who falls under the umbrella? At least initially, long COVID 
was defined as patients who had been infected with COVID-19 and who had recovered from the infection, the acute infection, but still had symptoms between three and six months later. Some definitions I read said six months, some said three. So that's really, you know, people who have persistent symptoms several months after having had the infection that apparently resolved. How often are you seeing this? How often are colleagues of yours seeing this? Is this very prevalent? Is it relatively rare? Is it alarmingly more than you thought? Could you categorize it? Well, I, I started a post-COVID recovery clinic early in 2021, you know, basically on the idea that uh, patients were having trouble seeing primary doctors and other doctors in person after, at that time. Uh, and we had kind of stayed open for business. So I just wanted to make sure people knew we were available to see them. Um, I'd have to say that I'm not seeing what I would say is a surprising amount of people with persistent symptoms. Uh, and also co non-COVID being defined broadly, I'm a lung doctor. So most of the patients I'm evaluating are coming in for concerns about their breathing and their lungs. So I would say it's pretty much as expected, especially I'm not inundated and given the number of people who have been infected, it's about what I expected to see. What do people that are dealing with long-term COVID, are there kind of universal problems? Does it vary depending upon the person or depending upon the age group or race, ethnicity, anything, or, or, or are there kind of a, a standard circle of things that most people that have long-term problems are dealing with? No, it's very, it's very, very variable. Um, there, there are going to be the things that you would expect to see uh, based on the patient's baseline age, underlying health, and the severity of the acute infection they had. Uh, obviously, someone who got severely ill and was in the ICU and on a ventilator for several weeks is much more likely to have some symptoms two, three, four months later than somebody who had a mild infection that was treated as an outpatient. Uh, there is the sort of the mysterious syndrome that, that people are describing. And one of the most common complaints you hear about is this idea of brain fog, that people find that two or three months later, four months later, they're still feeling like they're not working mentally as they should. And that's a very kind of vague symptom to get a hold of. Uh, so it does vary, but I think, again, most of the things that I see as a lung doctor are what I might expect based on the severity of the acute illness in the first place. How unusual is it for a virus to have a situation like this? It, I mean, as a layman, seems to me you, you get a virus, you get over it in however long it takes, and then it's in the rearview mirror. Is this like incredibly unusual to have some of these cases that, that do more than linger, that you know, cause these problems even months down the road? Well, I mean, if you look at the broad range of viral illnesses, I mean, certainly the, the, the sort of viral illnesses that we've been used to or that most people are used to thinking about, common cold, even the flu, those are illnesses that tend to come and go. And, and again, if you don't get severely ill, you tend to recover completely. Then there have always been viruses that we know of that are prone to cause longstanding uh, uh, symptoms, mononucleosis. Right? We all know that from, from college, that, that that's an illness 
that actually fairly commonly causes symptoms for many months after the acute infection. Uh, there are, ah, zoster, you know, that's a post-viral long symptom, comes up delayed. So no, I don't think prolonged symptoms after viral infections, especially for certain viruses or anything new. And in a lot of ways, these syndromes are fairly similar to what you might think of if you went back to uh, when you thought of mono. Some of these things are very similar that people complain about. Do you feel we have, and when I say we, I guess kind of society paid enough attention to these long haulers, or do you think we should be looking more at the problems they're having and, and paying more attention to it? That's a really good question. And it's a complicated one because we're not living in normal times. And we have so many other things that are having an impact on the way people feel about their lives and going about their lives. So it's, it's hard to say. I, I think that we are, we're evaluating people based on their symptoms, but again, the overall epidemiology of it still has to be defined. And again, you throw in the context of we've got so many other things to worry about as well, that it's hard, I, I really can't make a judgment. That's really a value judgment. Are we paying enough attention? Certainly when somebody's in front of me, I'm paying attention. Uh, and then there's the fact that many of the symptoms are sort of nonspecific and you're, you're dealing with an idea of uh, perhaps if you think of it as rehab, learning how to deal with the things you're experiencing. We don't have an overarching biological mechanism for this that we can say, well, okay, let's develop a medicine that's going to fix everybody's, you know, brain fog and body aches and, and trouble breathing and heart arrhythmias. So we have to deal, and this is the way most of us have been dealing with this. And when I started this, I had some conversations with some of the people in the big academic centers about their COVID clinics. And everybody pretty much had the same story. We're all dealing with the symptoms and investigating them and treating them as we normally would. Because that's pretty much all we can do. Are we in the midst of the great resignation or the great shift? We might not know the answer to that question for a while, but what is clear is that more Americans are currently choosing to leave their jobs than during any other period in American and modern history. And the COVID pandemic is quite clearly the catalyst for what might be long-lasting changes to the American economy. KYW News Radio out of Philadelphia talked with Eric Patton. He's a professor of management at St. Joseph's University. What we have seen for several months, what people are calling the great resignation, millions upon millions of people not getting laid off, not getting fired, but just quitting their job, looking for something different, dropping out of the workforce. Have we ever had a moment like this in modern history where people are proactively leaving their jobs at the, the rates and the numbers that we are seeing now? No, this is pretty unprecedented in our economy. I can't think of another situation where we've seen this many people sort of leaving the workforce at once. But, you know, I think what we're coming to grips with is there's a lot of smart people really trying to figure out what's happening here. So, for example, one thing I think that we've seen is, and we're even starting to debate, should we be calling this the great resignation? Is it a more of a shift of people moving around to different jobs? Is it people taking a pause? Is it really, you know, people going for good? One group that seems to be the quitters, like the ones who are like exiting the workforce for good, are older people, the kind of the boomer generation. And this is something that 
we've seen coming for, for a number of years. Generally speaking, in most kind of societies and most of the history of the United States, the population you know, has kind of looked a bit like a pyramid. And now we've had this bulge for the last, in the workforce at least, for the last like 40 years of this huge group of people who are at one point gonna exit uh, the scene. So we've had more of like an hourglass shape of the working population than like a pyramid shape of kind of more younger people and then fewer you know, older people. So the pandemic has been an accelerator for those people to, to leave. I mean, I remember going to conferences, you know, 10 years ago and people throwing around the year 2025 as a year of reckoning where there'd be like a worker shortage because of, uh, of the boomer generation sort of finally, you know, kind of dropping out. Well, we're 2021 and what we're seeing is there's a lot of people who are in their 60s, in their late 60s, who maybe were thinking of, you know, working until they were well into their 70s, who have decided to sort of tap out. Uh, this is a, a group that on the one hand is at risk, you know, as far as COVID goes. So they have an incentive to sort of protect themselves. They're also, and again, not to generalize, but they're also a generation that, you know, has quite a bit of wealth, financially secure, homes are paid off, kids are have, have grown up. And so there's a lot of people who work part-time jobs or full-time jobs who have looked at this and have said, yeah, you know, maybe this is a time to sort of, uh, while I'm still healthy, to enjoy retirement a little bit. So that's not really a resignation. That's kind of retirement. That's sort of like a regular thing that was going to happen anyway. And definitely adults above the age of 55 are, are among, definitely among the largest percentage of people who have quit. So that's one thing. That's kind of been an accelerator. That's sort of been something that was going to come at some point in the next 10 years. And it's happened in the last two years because of, of the pandemic. The other group are people who were in the hospitality and the leisure, you know, restaurants and, uh, you know, and these areas who lost their jobs when everything got shut down and their jobs were eliminated. And by the time things opened up, they had found better jobs. And that's kind of, again, what some people are calling the big shift as opposed to kind of the big resignation. It's where have all these workers gone who were you know, making pretty low level jobs that aren't that great. And when the economy shut down you know, and the restaurants shut down, they kind of lost their positions. Well, they found positions. They found positions working remotely. They found position in call centers. They found positions in different areas that actually pay better. I've, I've seen a number of articles of people, you know, in Pennsylvania, our minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. And if you're like working in retail or maybe in the food industry or something, and you were able to get yourself a 13 hour, a dollar an hour job in a call center doing something remotely, how do you entice those people to go back to those jobs? So there's a lot of people, again, who've actually not stopped working, but have just opted out of, of some of those jobs. So there's been a shift from people who were in maybe low level, low paying jobs who were the most vulnerable and, and got laid off first. They've actually been able to find 
sometimes because of, of the older people retiring, you know, on different things, you know, they've been able to do that. So that's the two ends of the spectrum. You find this uh, Odyssey original podcast and others at odyssey.com and on the Odyssey smartphone app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.